A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. Los Angeles police have been searching for a killer who has strangled young women and left their bodies along grassy hillsides. We've had yet another... uh set of remains identified. This is the second one that's taken place in the last several weeks. That's exactly how Bianchi and Bono started, using a badge to get free sex. The homicide detective said, what do you think? The whores are going to solve this murder? It's the stuff of nightmares. Women and girls disappearing, then showing up murdered, naked, and brutalized. A shadowy intruder breaking into homes, leaving satanic signs, and murdering and raping everyone inside. Yet, from 1977 to 1985, this was a reality for residents in Los Angeles, as it became the center of two of the most notorious, vicious, and devastating serial killer investigations in U.S. history. Those committed by the Hillside Stranglers Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono, and then the so-called Night Stalker Richard Ramirez. The period saw 25 murders, five attempted murders, and an unknown number of sexual assaults, and an entire city in a state of terror. For me, these cases are personal. I was born in the aftermath of the Hillside Strangler, and I was a young child during the Night Stalker. I remember being terrified in my own home, and my own family knew people attacked or murdered during both serial killing sprees. I need to understand how such devastation was allowed to happen, and if it could ever happen again. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is season two of Mind of a Monster, The Hillside Strangler and the Night Stalker. Episode one, Making a Killing in Hollywood. It's June 28, 1984, and L.A. is alive with excitement. In exactly a month, hundreds of thousands of tourists from all over the world will descend upon the city to celebrate the opening ceremonies of the Los Angeles Olympic Games at the Memorial Coliseum. President Reagan will be in attendance, as will Prince Charles, Brooke Shields, Gene Kelly, and Etta James. Olympic gold medalist Raffer Johnson will light the Olympic torch to a thunderous applause. 
church bells will ring out across Los Angeles in celebration. It will be America as it wants to be seen. But on this day, 20 minutes from the Coliseum, a very different scene is playing out. Glacelle Park is a modest suburb of low-income residents, one of whom is 79-year-old Jenny Vincow. She moved to L.A. a few years ago to be closer to her son, Jack, and resides in a shabby pink two-story apartment building. Glenn Martin is a former LAPD cop and the author of Satan's Summer in the City of Angels. He tells the story. Vincow was living alone in her apartment in that northeast portion of Los Angeles when her son came to visit, discovered a screen had been dislodged, and Jenny Vincow's dead body was found inside the apartment. The scene is gruesome. The walls are smeared with blood, and the apartment has been turned over. Jack finds his mother's lifeless body in her bedroom. She's lying underneath a brown and white plaid blanket. She's been stabbed multiple times in the chest and cut across her throat so severely that her head is almost decapitated. Investigators will later find a deep stab wound in her thigh and evidence of a sexual attack. Horrified, he calls 911, and the police are on the scene within minutes. Any murder that, that occurs in any jurisdiction, be it a, a jurisdiction as large as Los Angeles, gets a mass amount of attention in law enforcement. This is the most serious crime that police departments are tasked with investigating and solving, particularly in murders of women. The vast majority of those murders are committed by a male counterpart, be it a spouse, a boyfriend, a spurned lover, whatever the case may be. All they know is this elderly woman has been brutally murdered in her own home. Police cordon off the premises and conduct an extensive forensic search of the apartment. She's been dead several hours, meaning the murder happened at night. There's blood in the sink, indicating the killer washed his hands at some point during the violence. But there's nothing else. They check the whole place for fingerprints. Nothing. Finally, they turn their attention to the window where they believe the intruder broke in. Bingo! At least four prints. The body is taken to be autopsied, and the coroner is convinced of one thing. Whoever had killed Jenny Vincow had almost certainly killed before. In a month, Olympic fireworks will blast from the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, but another fire has already been ignited in L.A. A murderous hellfire, the likes of which law enforcement and locals thought they would never experience again. To tell that story we need to rewind seven years to 1977. Los Angeles has always been a city of many faces, a place where fabulous glamour and million-dollar smiles belie a seedy underworld of transients, drug addicts, and sex workers. But it is a place pulsating with opportunity. In 1977, Dr. Lois Lee was a young university research assistant in L.A. It was the disco era. I had lots and lots of girlfriends who wanted to be models and actresses and playmates. And we all had our nails done together every Sunday and went to the Daisy, which was a restaurant in Beverly Hills where O.J. Simpson met his wife. There were lots of stars. Everybody was pretty hip and trendy. It was a good time. People felt safe. 
I was born in the wrong time because the 70s are by far my favorite decade. And here you are living that life, but also getting your PhD. So you're kind of in this exciting juxtaposition for you to be studying during that era. Yes, we all had monikers. And my moniker, the girls would call me schoolgirl because there were parties I couldn't go to because I had to study. But L.A. wasn't all disco and glamour. For many, the city of angels could be a living hell. And Dr. Lee straddled both worlds. While living a dream of parties and excitement, her academic work brings her into contact with the most vulnerable people in society. So you're describing this very glamorous, glitzy 70s, but there was also a really dark side to Los Angeles. Would you describe for us the world of poverty, runaways, drugs, sex workers, pimps, all of it? The prostitutes I knew were all in court. We were basically using their cases to sue the police for the unequal enforcement of the prostitution law. I was an expert statistician. My world was miles apart from theirs. So you're young like them, but because of your academic work, you're analyzing data from sex worker arrests. So you have connections and a level of sway with authorities. So how do you start to help them? I was always raised by my family and my father particularly, who always told me, if anything ever happened, just drive to the police department, that they would help me, they'd protect me. During the Hillside Strangler, I learned that that was not true for everybody. And I think much of my fight for these girls was trying to reconcile in my own mind that society was good and that we were all treated equal. And it just wasn't true. I was a white girl from beach community who had been sheltered and lived in a bubble. To those in law enforcement, the darker side of L.A. was L.A. It's the perfect place for deviants to slip through the cracks, for drug addicts to fall deeper into addiction, and for the young to be preyed upon by the old. In 1977, Bob Grogan was a detective for LAPD, and he thought he'd seen it all. Tell me about what the regular person might not know about life in Los Angeles. Well, you know, Los Angeles, like any big city, is going to have crime issues. Uh, a lot of the crime issues in L.A. came from gangs. Trying to control the, the cocaine and the narcotic trade in L.A., uh, they don't like competition. So subsequently, they wound up killing each other a lot. And they were responsible for a lot of our murders. What motivated you to join the police force? Well, it was an accident, actually. I came out of the Marine Corps and didn't have a job. My buddy came up to me and said, hey, uh, LAPD's hiring and they're paying pretty good. And I said, I'm from Boston. I had no relationship with anybody in L.A. And I said, I don't want to be a cop, for Christ's sake. I thought the cops in Boston are crooks. That was a true statement. When I grew up, everybody was involved in corruption. So I got away from that. And I figured going back in L.A., get me, no, no, this is a very professional police department. So I went up, took the test. I passed and he failed. How about that? Wow. Well, and then once you pass and you meet the requirements that they're looking for, they were particularly happy to hire Marines because the Marines high quality of discipline. And so I guess that they went after me and said, okay, you're going to be a policeman. Damn it if I was, you know, 29 years later, I... Never regretted a minute of it. I loved going to work. I really did. And I loved putting assholes in jail. That made me feel awful good. I still have a lot of them in there that I put there, and I'm happy about that. 
Little did Bob Grogan realize that his usual cases of gang crime and narcotics investigations were about to be overshadowed by a terror that was far less predictable and would plunge the entire county into a state of fear. I want to get a feel of the city from the lens of a reporter. What was making the news? What were people interested in? I speak with Leo McElroy, who worked for ABC television at the time. Los Angeles, to those of us who were there most of our lives, I was born there, went to school there, went to college there. We all realized Los Angeles was not a city. Los Angeles was a collection of suburbs in search of a city that never really came together very well and have not to this day. The only unifying things we had were the major market media, the three or four daily newspapers, the radio and TV. And for those of us in journalism, had a real sense of the media being the only unifying thing in the entire Los Angeles market. And unfortunately, a lot of time we were unifying the market with really bad news. Gosh, I've never heard it put that way, but I have to say, that makes more sense as a description of Los Angeles than any I've ever heard. I grew up here as well, and the news does unite all of these little suburbs. And like you said, there's a bit of an underbelly here of dark news. The oh. dark news was the only thing we shared most of the time. The opportunities presented by this darkness in LA proved a magnet to the most violent and disturbed of society, one of whom was about to arrive. On the other side of America, 25-year-old Kenneth Bianchi is restless. To those who know him, he's a personable man. Earnest, gregarious, albeit a little full of himself. He has a failed marriage and a series of dead-end menial jobs behind him, and he wants more from life. Yet, Bianchi wears a facade. Behind the charm is a man harboring dark fantasies. In 1975, he leaves New York for L.A. to live with his older cousin, Angelo. The pair barely know each other. So much about what we understand about violent offenders comes from their own mouths. For a criminal psychologist like me, what they reveal and don't reveal about themselves is invaluable. Archive tapes from 40 years ago allow us an unprecedented window into Bianchi's psyche. In this clip I'm about to play you, Bianchi details his motivations for moving to California. What decided you to go to California? What? You're pretty well stuck in Rochester, and Mom's right there. What? I was tired of the snow. Um, thought I could get a better job. Always wanted to go to the Sunshine State, you know, sunny California. Um, had someone talked to you about the great, uh... Well, my parents had talked, had talked about it off and on from when we were in California when I was small, yeah. just a short time. They had talked about it, you know, and, and you always hear all these myths about yeah. California. Yeah. So I went to find out for myself, you know, it's an opportunity. His reasons seem straightforward enough. There were plenty of people making their way to California in the 1970s. Conversely, for the young and vulnerable, L.A. could quickly turn them into prey. Within this world, sex workers were extremely at risk for mistreatment, not only from clients and pimps, 
but from the very system itself. It was Dr. Lois Lee's job to analyze data from arrests to shed light on the treatment of sex workers when they entered the legal system, as she explains. So take me back to your doctoral program. It's the 70s. What, is, what specifically were you studying? I was looking for data that would meet the requirement of the quantitative analysis. I came back to Los Angeles and met a lawyer and told him I had students, I was an instructor, and I had a team and I could do the research if he could get the court order to let us look at the arrest. And he had to find a prostitute who was willing to allow her case to be drug out that long because usually they wanted their cases over with immediately. And he found Yolanda Washington. Yolanda is a young woman who works as a prostitute in Hollywood. She's been pulled in by police a handful of times for soliciting and is the first of many Dr. Lee would set out to help. I asked her to help me understand what the situation was like for women and girls caught up in this trade. Throughout this story, we are dealing with lots of young women, some of them just girls and teenagers. What was bringing runaways to Los Angeles, and how would a girl like Yolanda get pulled into sex work? I mean, I read that some of them were as young as 11. Is that what you were seeing? Child prostitution in America, I mean, throughout history, children have prostituted, but the big increased jump in numbers was a result of a negligent act by Congress. Congress, every couple of years, evaluates something called the Juvenile Justice Delinquency Prevention Act. And they look at states of how they handle children under the age of 18. And had learned that children in some states were put in jail for running away or for curfew or truancy. And in other states, they weren't. And they passed this act that prevented the police from picking up children and detaining them for runaway curfew or truancy. And what happened is the kids realized the police had no power over them, and nationwide kids began to run and group together. It was a cultural movement initially, very much like the hippie movement. And kids naturally came to Hollywood because of the the weather and the attraction of movie stars and opportunity to be an actress or to be a model. And when they came here, they were very vulnerable to a specific kind of con man that frequents Hollywood that says, I can make you a star. I'm an agent. I just put a girl in the movie. I got Farrah Fawcett her job, whatever the story may be. And all you have to do is you're going to have to have your hair done and you're going to have to have your nails done and you're going to have to dress better than that. And how much money do you have? And the girls would say, I don't have any money. And then they would say, well, I'll show you how you can make some money. Now, that's the front story. The back end story is that many of these kids who ran were running not from good homes. They were running from homes where they were abused sexually, physically, neglected, ignored, abandoned, and poor. So the pimp would do something known as a deep quiz, like, why are you out here? You're such a pretty girl. Why don't you have your daddy buy you some Gucci? Well, I don't have a daddy. Or, or the story would come out that their dad had molested them. And so a pimp would say, you know, you don't have to put up with that in your own home. I can show you how to make money and how to make men pay you for sex and how to control the sex. And you and I could be together and I could put the money in a business 
You'd do this just for a little while. We'd build the business, we'd buy a home, and you could have my baby. And to her, that was very, very desirable because as little girls in America, and, and I believe this is probably still true, we're told that, you know, you grow up, you meet Prince Charming, you have a home, a business, a house, with a white picket fence, and a baby. And so these girls didn't want anything different than other girls. They just lacked the conventional means to access that lifestyle. And so the pimp would present a non-conventional means to achieve that lifestyle. And that became very compelling. And as a pimp would recruit more and more girls, he would tell each one he loved her the most and that she was the real one that they were using the other girls. And that made it very hard for the, as hard to get out of that as it was to get away from drugs, you know, because it was addictive. You wanted to believe after you sold your bodies, were on the streets, sometimes went to jail. You wanted to believe that this was true and to believe that you were made a fool of was a really tough, tough transition. The way you paint that picture, it makes so much more sense. Because, you know, you have this picture in your head of a young girl walking the streets, but you don't realize what she was told or how she was convinced to get there. And I'm realizing it could really happen to anybody, especially if you don't have parents there to stop it. Exactly. And I remember a case of a 13-year-old girl who was on the streets and her mother was there. She was on Sunset Boulevard. And the mother said to the policeman, that's my daughter. That man she's with is an 82-year-old pimp. He's a parolee. Get my daughter away from him. And he said, ma'am, I can't. There's no laws. If you can get her to tell me he had sex with her, then I can pick him up and put him in jail. But just because she's hanging with them, there's no laws. There's no contributing to the delinquency of a minor anymore. There's nothing I can do. And that was true. And there were plenty of men looking to make money off the trade in women's bodies. Coming up, Bianchi and his cousin begin their descent into violence and a young boy with disturbing fantasies sets his sights on L.A. Born in 1934, Angelo Bono had moved to L.A. from New York with his family as a child and had grown into a vicious man. He'd sexually abused women, girls, and boys, even his own children. His criminal history included grand theft auto, rape, and failure to pay child support. By 1977, he was 44 years old and running a small car upholstery business. He was Kenneth Bianchi's cousin, and the pair were like apples and oranges. The older, a gruff, crumpled bully of a man, the younger, suave and personable. Yet somehow, this unlikely pair formed a deep bond and decided to make their money pimping young women. They just needed to find some. Bob Grogan explains. It's not like it's in the movies. It's, it's a more complicated grooming process. you got to think about it. They wanted free sex. You know, they were getting sex from these two gals they had living in their house for a while, but they wanted to broaden their sexual career, so to speak. So they had a badge, and they thought, hey, we'll use this badge. We'll put out all the sex we want from the whores in Hollywood, 
And after we get the sex, or I take them back to the house, I'll just show them the badge and tell them, hey, we ain't paying. Bye. That's what they did. That's exactly how Bianchi and Bono started. Using a badge to get free sex. And the badge belonged to Angelo Bono's uncle, or father, I believe, when he was a, a security officer. They both enjoyed preying upon the vulnerable. One such was 17-year-old Sabra Hannon. She arrived in L.A. with dreams of pursuing a modeling career. And at a party in 1977, a seemingly charming man named Kenneth Bianchi promised her the world. Her friend, Becky Spears, would soon be drawn in as well. Dr. Lois Lee knew her. Well, Sabra was very beautiful and very smart and wanted to be somebody. Then we went out. We went out to some nightclubs and hung out. Tell me what you know about what happened to them. Well, Bianchi promised Sabra that he was an agent and he could make her a star. He was really good at, at playing different roles. And so she ended up with him and then she met Angelo Bono and then they had a different plan. And they had a plan to where she would have sex with men and they asked her to get a friend. And she got Becky, told Becky about this dream because Sabre was still a true believer. And Becky came out and the game changed. They were taken out to a warehouse at one point where a lot of law enforcement members, not of Los Angeles, but of a different jurisdiction, were there to have sex with the girls in a warehouse. These guys repaired police cars, so they were pretty confused about what kind of relationship they had with the police. To be clear, neither Sabra nor Becky had any history of sex work before they encountered Bianchi and Bono. Up until now, Bianchi was not known to have been violent, but something shifted when he and Bono joined forces. He had lied to the young Sabra Hannon. Instead of giving her the world, he tore it out from under her. The cousins forced her and Becky Spears into prostitution and abused them. The young woman managed to escape, but there was a final sting. Bono and Bianchi sent them in a shoebox dead cats and saying, you're a, de you're a dead blank. To me, this raises a huge red flag. Both Bono and Bianchi see themselves as mafia-style big shots, and the theatrics of the dead creatures come straight from the Godfather playbook. It's also incredibly revealing that we have evidence of fatal violence against animals early on in the story. It follows a well-known pattern. Sabra and Becky take it as a sign to be quiet, so they are. Although not quite a runaway like Sabra and Becky, in 1973, a 13-year-old boy named Richard Ramirez had arrived in L.A. from El Paso to visit his older brother. Richard was a strange individual. He was obsessed with detective magazines and reading about serial killers and murder. Death fascinated him. And it's no wonder he had a tough start in life. Ken Davis was a reporter and producer for CBS News during the late 1970s and 80s, and he explains. Richard Ramirez had a nightmare childhood. When he was about two, a dresser fell on his head, causing him to get 30 stitches. He was almost killed. A few years later, he was hit by a swing he was playing on. He was knocked unconscious, and this caused deep gashes. And finally, at age 12, possibly because of all this brain trauma, he was diagnosed with epilepsy. To add to it, he was strongly influenced by his older cousin, Miguel, who was a decorated Green Beret combat vet 
He often boasted of his brutal war crimes during the war and shared Polaroid pictures of his victims, both during and after his crimes, which fascinated young Richard. That's not scary, I don't know what is. Later in 1973, Ramirez watched when that cousin fatally shot his wife, Jessie, in the face right in front of Richard with a handgun during a domestic argument. He was quickly charged with the murder and removed from the child's life, but his influence had already proved formative. The image of a dead body, the smell of the blood, the delight in the gore had a profound effect on Richard. It fascinates me to see the similarities between Ramirez's and Bianchi's early lives. They are different in so many ways, but they both attach themselves to boastful, bullying, and violent older cousins. This is highly unusual. And why was this? Did the older cousins set the course of the younger's lives, or did the younger ones simply seek out a role model who fit their interests? Whatever the reason, in LA, this troubled teen found a place of excitement and possibility. And when he returned to El Paso, he fantasized about returning. But there was a more urgent threat simmering in Los Angeles. With the escape of Sabra and Becky, Bianchi and Bono were left without revenue. We know that their next step was to enlist the help of another sex worker, Deborah Noble, to revive their fledgling business. Deborah was friends with Lois Lee's contact Yolanda Washington and sold the cousins a list of clients. Only the list was fake. Dr. Lois Lee ran into Yolanda Washington on the streets of Hollywood again, where she met her friend Deborah Noble. Debbie called me and asked me to go to the Beverly Hills courthouse because Yolanda had been arrested for prostitution. So I went to see if I could help Yolanda, but she had already pled guilty and had been sentenced to 10 days. So I asked the judge if I could speak to her, and he said, yes, of course. And so I spoke to Yolanda, and I said, please call me when you get out of jail. I can help you. Let me help you. And she agreed that she would. Lois had the resources and connections to help Yolanda with legal advice and health care there was a real chance that things were about to improve for her significantly. But Lois wasn't the only one who knew Yolanda Washington worked Sunset Boulevard. Bianchi and Bono had been made aware too, and as they were cruising along one night, they spotted her. On October 18, 1977, the naked body of a young woman is found near Forest Lawn Cemetery, the final resting place of celebrities. This is not a crime scene. It's a dump site. Aside from the body, there's nothing else there. Bob Grogan was on the scene. There was ligature marks around her neck. She was a victim of strangulation. We did a background check, found out she was a part-time prostitute. You do that by talking to the girls in the street. Your best information, and so we found out all much we, knew, we needed to know about her, that she was a, a prostitute but was uh, working in Hollywood. The body is 20-year-old Yolanda Washington. Debbie Noble called me and said, you know, Yolanda's dead. And I said, what happened? And the police will not talk to us. 
So she said, can you help us? We have information. We know who did it. So I said, of course. So I called LAPD and the homicide detective said, what do you think? The whores are going to solve this murder? I said, well, maybe. And I then called the sheriff's department and talked to a friend of mine and told him, and he said, it's not our jurisdiction, but I can get two of our officers, two of our detectives to go out there and talk to these girls if you like. I said, let's do it. So he set up two detectives and we went out and we talked to the girls and I had to vouch for them that they wouldn't arrest them for prostitution. So there wasn't much that anybody thought except for the fact that she was killed by the drug dealer or boyfriend drug dealer whose car she had stolen. And what were you hearing at this time from your contacts? From those girls, just the limited number of girls I knew from the courtroom and from the girls on the street just was that the police were not responsive or taking it serious and really didn't care that she'd been murdered. A, because she was, in their words, a whore, and B, because she was black. In this chilling archive tape I'm about to play for you, we hear Bianchi detailing the story to a psychiatrist. He and Angelo are driving downtown at night. Okay, he um, he dropped me off at a street corner. There was a gas station there, and he went to he went to pick up um, a hooker, which he did, and he came by and picked me up, and he had her uh, in the front seat, and he flashed a, a badge on her and told her he was a cop, and. She was made to go into the back seat. Um, Angelo, he pulled over somewhere just before getting onto the freeway. And he climbed partially into the back seat from his side of the car, and he had a pair of handcuffs, and he handcuffed her. And um, he got on the freeway, and um, she was raped by me. And um, Angel said that we had to get rid of her. I can practically hear hear him yelling to get rid of her, to get rid of her, to kill her. Telling you to. Yeah, and she was put on the floor and killed. No questions asked. No reason why. How was she killed? Strangled. I returned to Bob Grogan. What was the press's reaction to this? There was very little attention given to that murder case at all. None. Matter of fact, I don't think it made the front page of the papers. I don't ever remember seeing any pictures of her in the newspapers. It was carried no coverage whatsoever. Was it unusual for sex workers to be murdered at the time? Was, did this stand out for you or was this something you dealt with? No, we dealt with it. What happens in prostitution is when the prostitute gets can't deliver the product anymore, the pimp gets rid of them. I mean, they don't get a pension, you know, and hang around as a retired prostitute. Most of your prostitutes are killed by their pimps. Once they can't be a good prostitute, they can't bring in the money, the pimps take them out. You know? So they don't just let them go to back to a normal life. They take them out as if they're not a person. No. They don't want anybody testifying against them. Now that is a dark underbelly of sex work, if I ever heard one. So when you have a murdered sex worker come across your desk, you're not thinking serial killer. You're thinking the pimp was done with this 
this girl. Yeah. The logic wasn't too far off. There had been a pimp involved. Two, in fact. They just hadn't previously been connected to her. What they could not have known was that this was just the beginning. In the next episode, another woman is discovered brutalized in the same way. She's displayed for all to see on the Hollywood hillside, and L.A. faces the chilling realization that someone is preying upon the most vulnerable in society. Mind of a Monster, The Hillside Strangler, and The Night Stalker is produced by Arrow Media for ID. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.